Romans chapter 3, I titled the sermon, Judging God, Judging God. And I'll just say, Paul knows this, I, I know this to a, to a degree. When you teach or when you preach, it is entirely possible for people to hear words and then draw conclusions that you didn't intend at all. Or, or even misconstrue your words and say, well, this is what you said. And all of a sudden I'm like, no, no, I didn't say that. That's not what I meant at all. But let me clarify, right? Uh, so give you an example. For instance, uh, when teaching on the sovereignty of God, that God is absolute in his sovereignty. Sometimes people will come and say, well, then you, you don't believe in prayer. You, you guys don't believe in evangelism then, right? And I'm like, well, why, why would... How, where'd you get that? Hold on. Whoa, easy. Well, you said God is absolutely sovereign, which means then that this and this must be true. And I'm like, oh, no, that's, that's absolutely not what we believe. We do believe in prayer, and we do believe in evangelism for the very reason that he is indeed sovereign. And he's sovereign in those things that he calls us to do. That's the motivation, the joy, the confidence for the practice. You see what I mean? So, the challenge for us as we study our Bibles is to not get ahead or even draw conclusions that the Bible doesn't draw. We want to be faithful and let the text lead us. And every time you're teaching, that's the benefit of conversation, follow-up, dialogue, and questions. Well, Paul here, he's, he's familiar with that. And in these verses, we have a basis to begin with. Let me, let me go back to Romans 1. Uh, and point you to the righteousness of God. Again, we're dealing with that as the main theme of the book of Romans, especially the early chapters. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, right? That's, that's where the, the, the circle began, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, to the Greek. Now listen to what he says. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God. Now this is where the, the focus on the righteousness of God is brought up. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed or made manifest from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live, not by works, that's not the basis of our justification of our righteousness, but by faith. And he's building that out in this this book of Romans, which brings us to these objections to his teaching. Remember, Paul has been teaching for over 20 years. This is not, uh, you know, not like a, a, a teacher who's just green and just taking the stage. This man has been evangelizing and, and conversing and engaging. You know, the first place he would go whenever he would start uh, uh, in a new place is the synagogue to the Jew first, and then he would move out from there. And while he was having these conversations, there was a lot of, uh, uh, well, of, of responses that he's heard over the years. And I think in this passage, these, these eight verses, he's anticipating what he knows will come from the Jewish audience that receives this letter in Rome and may be inclined to res respond similarly to all the years of responses that he's heard already. It's kind of like my uncle, who's a professor in, in seminary. He teaches first-year seminary students, which means that after doing that for well over 20 years, might, might be upward closer to 30 years now, there's not a question that my uncle hasn't heard. You, you know what I mean? 
and, and, and the questions he's heard, he's heard countless times and, and sought to answer. So you get to the point as a teacher at a, po- a point along the way where you begin to know the question before it's asked. When you, when you teach something, you anticipate the question, you ask it for them, and then you address it, you answer it. Or the objection, you, 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 you speak into the objection and then you, you answer it. And I think that's what we have here with Paul. He sees some misrepresentations of his teaching, even some false conclusions that have been drawn, and he's raising them in anticipation of this letter arriving in Rome and the same thing happening there. So, anticipating and answering objections. Three main objections are raised in these eight verses. Let's deal with the first one here. Paul, you're saying that we, the Jews, have no advantage. We have no advantage. That's what I hear you saying, Paul, because you said that, that an uncircumcised Gentile who is seeking to obey the law uh, through the power of the gospel, right, new covenant, is saved in Christ and is seeking to live these things out, could say to uh, an unsaved Jewish person who is indeed circumcised and has the law but doesn't obey it and, 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 and do anything in his life to confirm that, that circumcision means anything as far as a sign of the covenant, this person could say to this person, what's wrong? That's completely inconsistent. You, you say you have the sign of circumcision, this relationship with Christ, but you have, you have no fruit. There's no, there's no display of obedience. And they say, well, then what's the advantage of, of our Jewish heritage? Is there any benefit in being Jewish? Well, Paul is going to speak to this. Listen to what he says. Verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? You see how he asked the question for him? Or what is the value of circumcision? He responds, much in every way, much in every way. And then he says this, to begin with, which I I prefer to translate um, predominantly or chiefly or foremost among the things, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay, now for the full list of what Paul sees as the advantages of being Jewish throughout the the Old Testament and in that experience, is in Romans 9. Let me read you what the full list is. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He goes on. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, right? Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. There's the full list. But in our passage today, He draws attention to what he sees as the foremost, the the most amazing blessing that the Jews were given is to be entrusted with the oracles of God. I mean, think of it right here, even us today as we gather. We gather. Many of you have your Bibles open before you. We don't have fear of of the police coming in and, and confiscating our Bibles and locking us up. That is... That is a blessing, friends. You realize the privilege it is for you to have access to the Word of God, to be able to come and hear it preached and and taught. A tremendous privilege. This is something that the Jews were blessed with. 
What great nation is there, Deuteronomy, the Lord says, that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Uh, Moses is speaking. Whenever we call upon Him, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules uh, so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? No other nation, right? Go to the Psalms in, uh, in Psalm 147. The psalmist writes this. He declares, the Lord declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. What a privilege it is. You think of, of the benefit. When we, we went through Leviticus. When I think Leviticus, I always go over here. Do you see what I'm doing? This is where the altar was and all of the sacrifices. We dealt with that over here. So join me in Leviticus. This is, this is Leviticus. It, sometimes people are like, what is he doing? Is there some? No, I'm thinking, like remembering. We in Leviticus saw how the people of God were given all of those commandments but the benefit of that revelation is they could come into the presence of God, bring their sacrifices. Sinners, by the blood of the Lamb, were able to come into His presence and worship Him and obey Him. What other nation was blessed in that way? No other nation. To them was entrusted the oracle, the gift of God's Word. And just imagine two people, put, put this in a modern context, two, two men, let's say, in their, in their mid-40s, sitting side by side this morning together in church. One man, his story is, boy, I, you know, I, I, I was born into a Christian family that went to church and, and the Gospel was the air we breathed. And from a young age, I heard the teaching of, of, of Christ and, and the Word of God was open to my eyes and God saved me from my sins when I was young. And each Sunday we were in church and I sat under the Gospel, the Word of God proclaimed. And I grew and I, I grew roots into the doctrines to joyfully delight in all that Scripture calls us to. And I've been able to, to walk with God for all these years. That's a precious gift. Sitting right next to him, a fellow believer of only just a couple weeks. Imagine this. That man is saying, well, I, I never heard the gospel. I never was in church. Our family had no affiliation whatsoever with the Bible. And two weeks ago, I was saved. Someone told me the gospel. They shared with me the word of God, the good news. And now here I am. This is like my second week in church. I'm hearing my very second sermon of my life. Now ask the question, what advantage does the first man have? How would the second man respond? How would the, in, in this text, how would the Gentile respond to the Jew who asked that question? Are you kidding me? advantage your entire life you've been blessed with god's word think of all the opportunities you've had to know and obey think of all the sins you were able to see clearly and avoid by god's grace think of the blessing of sitting under the gospel and the word of god for all those years that second man would look and say I made so many terrible choices. I didn't have the gospel. 
operating in my life. I didn't know Christ. I walked in darkness, and I'm still feeling the echo of that in my days. Some of those echoes are never going to go away on this, in this life, but I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. We're brothers. Tremendous benefit. Sometimes it's easy for young people to, who, who grow up in the church to say, well, my story is kind of boring. Right? I mean, I was saved at a young age and, and you know, I didn't hit skid row and I've not been knocking banks over and, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a hellion. I, I'm a, a Christian kid that grew up in the church. A sinner saved by grace. And we would say of that, praise God for His lavish gift of grace. That He steered you clear of all of the challenges that you would have experienced apart from knowing Christ and walking in obedience to Him. Friends, that is a tremendous gift. I had a mom one time tell me, I long, now that I know Christ, I long for my children to tell the testimony someday that you have. And that really kind of helped me see that that, that is awesome. It's a gift. You ask the question, well, who is superior? Who is superior? Is, is the man who grew up in the church who knows all these things and can maybe can quote Bible verses all day long and, and knows his doctrines, and, and is he better than his brother who was just saved a week ago? No. No. The, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. And all who come to Christ come empty-handed, desperate in need. We are together in our desperation. Is the Jew superior to the Gentile? Because they have had this tremendous blessing and legacy in the oracles of God. Are they better than the Gentile? An important answer here is absolutely not. No way. So in the church, you have Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, men and women. And the answer, who is superior no one is superior. Christ is. He is superior. He's the King. And all of us together, we're all in one boat. Sinners saved by grace. So important to answer that correctly. Now, egalitarians, they, they, they would say that the ground is, is level at the foot of the cross and we're all the same. That's not what the Bible says. We're not all the same. We're different. Men are not women. They're not women because God designed them to be men. And He designed women to be women. So we don't want to suggest sameness is where our equality comes. Our equality comes by desperate need for salvation. Our equality comes in that we all come by faith, not in our works or our meritorious you know, things that we bring to the table. We come to Christ and to Christ alone. For salvation. Hmm. Let's go to the, the second objection. You might say, well, Paul, this is an interesting one. Paul, God can't judge our disobedience because he is faithful. Listen to how the words go on this. This is a fascinating one. Uh, Paul, what, he, Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? You see him asking the question that, that he would have anticipated being asked. 
Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, if not all Jews are believers, if not all Jews obeyed, then does that mean that God failed? Is that, is that God's fault? Is, is, are we saying that God is not faithful? Or to put it this way, can we corner God? Can we find a little leverage on God? Listen, God, I'm a Jew, and you made a promise, which means it doesn't really matter what I do. What matters is you can't lie. You have to be faithful, and I will use that as leverage against you. I can live however I want, and you have to be faithful, and I don't have to be fearful. Is that possible? Friends, no. That is scary logic. Scary thinking. You know what's amazing to me is that there are some people who come to the gospel with this kind of mindset. They, they come to the gospel and they think of about the gospel as, well, listen, if I get the fire insurance, you know, if I, if I, if I just get God cornered, then he has to bless me. He has to save me. I can live however I want. That's where we get the frozen chosen, right? This whole thing, hey, I'm elect, I'm God's chosen. Doesn't matter what I do, does it? It doesn't matter what my life looks like. He has to save me. And I would say to that, be very, very careful. That is some thin ice. God's people that he chooses and forgives sins and gives life and, and light to their eyes, they don't say things like that. They don't say holiness means nothing to me, but I'm going to get heaven. God's people see sin and it grieves. God's people love the Savior who bled for them and they seek to obey him in love. Be clear, our obedience is not the grounds of our salvation. But our salvation is going to be expressed in obedience. Hmm. You can get here, if you're a Jew, by emphasizing one covenant and not the other. If you say, well, it's all about the Abrahamic covenant, guess what? That's unconditional. He said, I'm going to do it. We're good to go. The problem is, is that there's another covenant. It's the Mosaic Covenant. And that was not unconditional. That was extremely conditional. You remember the words. These words that I give you today, they are all, if you obey them and walk in the, in the ways of the Lord, He was going to bless you. His blessing will be upon you. Obey Him and walk. But if you disobey and you break these laws that I set before you, you make God your enemy. You forfeit the blessings that He has set upon you. And he will oppose you all the way to the fires of hell. That's the reality. There is no way to say, well, God, I've got leverage on you. You can't lie. You said you would save me, which means I can live however I want. Some people will think of sanctification in this way. They'll, they'll say, listen, the Christian life is all about just let go and let God. You get on the old escalator of holiness and you just flop down, right? Oh, I'm saved. I can live however I want. I'm going to wake up someday and be holy. Is that how it works? 
No, the Bible, friend, is filled with commands that are to be obeyed. Now, not in our own strength. In the strength that the Lord provides, we are to kill sin and put on obedience and righteousness and holiness. But if we approach it as if, yeah, this is, I, I, I said the prayer, I'm good to go. God, you have to do this. I'm just going to lay down, take a nap, and ride the escalator of holiness up. I would say, there's a good chance that you're not saved. There's a good chance that you don't even know the gospel that you say you believe. It has to be said. There's churches even that have embraced this kind of teaching in our county. It's not biblical. Now, I want to teach you a Greek word here. It's, a, it's kind of together, two, two Greek words. Me genoito. Okay, let's say this on three. One, two, three. Me genoito. Now, let me tell you what this means. It means by no means. Or, New American Standard, may it never be. Stephen Lawson said most literally this, this, this translates to not be. It's the most emphatic uh, no that Paul can give. And he's going to use this quite a bit in Romans. So I want you to kind of recognize this. So there's gonna be, as soon as you see that word, we all collectively say, me genoito. Okay, so get ready. Get ready. It's going to come up again. When you see it, you've got to say it. We should probably say it one more time with conviction. Okay? It's, we're, we're saying, is this something that's possible? And Paul wants us emphatically to say no. Now in Greek, on three. One, two, three. Yes. Yes, that's good. With conviction. By no means, he responds. And then he says this, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, now he quotes from Psalm 51, that you, O God, may be justified or declared righteous in every word you speak, in all of your judgments, in your words, and prevail when you are judged or when you pass judgment. What's going on here? Some of you know Paul Bauer. He was an elder in this church. This is his verse, right? If you know him, he has quoted this over and over. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. I called him and I texted him, and, and we talked yesterday on the phone, and I said, Paul, I'm preaching from your verse, man. I'm, I'm trying to do it justice here. You guys should come up and join us. They couldn't come. But, but uh, as we were talking about all these different things, he actually used it in our conversation, which just cracks me up. This verse is so rich. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, even if no one was faithful on the face of the earth, if everyone were a liar, God would still be true and righteous and, and just. God is true and true to His Word. Nothing that we do is going to change that. When he judges, he judges righteously and justly. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now, the second half of this is an amazing bridge that, that Paul, just what a genius Paul was in the Old Testament as he wove it into the New Testament reality. Remember King David and his sin with Bathsheba. 
he took another man's wife and he went into her and they she got pregnant okay and to cover up this atrocity this sin of adultery he had uriah put on the front lines of the battle that he should have been at and and killed so here comes a dead man murder we've got adultery and we've got lying and and a litany of other sins i imagine would all kind of magnet in around here this is the king of israel the most glorious king israel has ever known he's committed these sins and he's hiding them from god yeah right god sins lovingly god sends nathan the prophet and nathan confronts him with his sin he says this is what you've done and this is what god's going to do and then he pronounces this judgment on david and on the child that would be born from Bathsheba, from their sin. And the judgment is, I'm going to take the child. That child is going to be taken by the Lord. And your kingdom is going to come to tremendous embarrassment at the hand of, and we know, Absalom, who committed some horrible, horrible things and shamed his family and certainly his dad. It is Upon the pronouncement of those judgments that are sure to come, that David responds with these words. This is what David said. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now just let me explain this. That does not mean that he didn't sin against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against every single person in Israel. He did, to be clear. What he's saying here is, ultimately, my sin is atrocious. It is heinous because it is against you. I have sinned against your holiness, chiefly and among all the other uh, atrocities that I have committed. My sin is greatest against you. And that's what he targets. And then he says, I have done what is evil in your sight so that you my God, may be justified or righteous in your words, and we know words of judgment, and so that you may be blameless in your judgment. And David saying, against me. I embrace your judgment. You are just. You are right. Hmm. How easy it is for us when things don't go the way we'd prefer, to begin to kind of simmer a bit at God. How easy it is for us to, 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 to get angry at God. And I'll just say it again. I know I've said this recently, but it's never okay to be angry at God. Throw out the terrible advice you've heard about how you have to like, oh, what is that word? You've got to just like uh, spew or whatever it is, vent, that's the word. You just got to vent all your anger at God. No, you, you can bring frustrations of other situations and bring it to him. Tell him what you're feeling, but don't ever be angry at God. Anger at God is disapproval of God. Judging God. Who are we to ever pass judgment 
on the God of all glory, the one who establishes the bar of righteousness. He is not like, well, let's see, how do you measure up to righteousness? As if somehow it's exterior to him, something that he possesses some of. No, he is the standard of righteousness against all other righteousness and how it is judged. We, we assess righteousness based upon God. We have no right ever to point the finger at the heavens and say, how dare you? I disapprove. I disagree. I judge. I question your character. I used to trust you. I used to think you were loving. But no, I don't do that anymore. Oh man, if you feel your heart leading you there, bend your knee in humility. It's pride. It's pride that would ever cause us to, to rise up and say, I, the sinner, with this tiny little view and this epically small dose of wisdom, I am going to judge you, the God who knows all things, the God of all sovereignty, the God of all wisdom, the God of all glory. Never is that our place. King David didn't do that. He received humbly from God. It's one of the reasons he is a man after God's own heart. Honestly, he repented of his sins, humbling himself, running to God, grieving over his sin, accepting the consequences. Righteousness and justice are the foundation, the very foundation of God's throne. So I would say it like Kevin DeYoung said it. I, I just love how he put this. We are far too quick to question and judge God. We are far too slow to question and judge ourselves. Right? I mean, how easy it is for us to kind of explain away our sin. Well, I mean, you know, I, you got to give me a little bit of an out. I mean, it, it was a tough situation. I was just reacting. Right? Excuse, excuse, justify, justify. Yeah, but they did, right? They, they did this. You cannot justify a sinful response to the reception of sin from someone else. Jesus didn't. We are far too quick to question and judge God. This impulse in us is not new. It is all the way back to Genesis 3. That is where we found it. We, like Adam and Eve, are way too quick to say, well, I think he's holding out on us. Maybe he doesn't have our best in view. Maybe he isn't good. Oh, friends, question first your limited view. Question first your inclination to pride. And trust him. Trust him. We may not on this side of eternity ever understand why he does things the way he does in any specific situation. Usually the why questions we leave to him. The what questions, that's a helpful. Lord, what are you teaching me? What can I learn? What should my response be in a way that glorifies you? What can I learn from this that will help someone else? Right? What, what, what? Don't blame God for your judgment. And let's be clear. For Christians... Here in the room, for those who are trusting in Christ, all of your judgment when it comes to wrath, that is all paid in full. It's done. You don't face any wrath from God. So if you feel that God bringing upon you his judgment, 
It's His love. It's His discipline. He is for you. So lift up your your, your head, as the writer of Hebrews 12 says, and, and, and know that He disciplines those He loves. Just like a son in whom His Father delights. Confession, repentance, and consequence. I, I think sometimes we do pretty well on confession. Confession is agreement. Lord, I agree with you that what I did was wrong. Repentance is turning from it, right? But what about consequences? I don't think we give enough attention to consequences. How do I walk through the consequences of sinful choices that I made and now I bear consequences? Now, you can be forgiven and you can walk through repentance and still carry consequences. Like if I rob a bank and I get caught, I'm in jail. How do I wake up in the morning in jail and walk with God? Oh, I can't believe I'm still in jail. This isn't right. I'm so sick of this. What are you doing up there? Why am I still in here? Right? You see that? That impulse is pride. Part of what we're called to when when we walk through repentance is the accepting of the consequences of our sin. Lord, what you ordain and bring to pass as a consequence of my sinful reactions and choices, I receive from you. Even when it's pretty harsh and heavy and difficult. God is good even in the consequences he's teaching us. He's calling us to himself. Hmm. Number three, the objection comes, and this is the just straight up the dumbest one in the whole bunch, right? This is the silliest objection you could ever make, but here it is. Paul, here's the thing. If our sin makes God look good, then he would be wrong to punish us for it, right? I mean, listen to how they say this. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul has to insert here, I speak in a human way. He he wants to be clear. This is not what I'm teaching you. This is what I've heard over and over and over. This is terrible thinking. Hmm. Get ready. Let's go back. Okay, you saw it. It's coming. I speak in a human way, and all of us collectively with Paul respond, one, two, three, Good noise. Okay, we got to do better than that. Come on now. On three. One, two, three. May. Good How does he respond? By no means. Absolutely not. Throw out any thought like that. That's not true. That's not right. That's not consistent with any of what I've been teaching, he says. For then how could God judge the world? And for the Jewish listeners, they're saying, He's talking about Gentiles, which, by the way, they were certain God would judge, right? There was no lack of clarity. Of course, he's going to judge the pagans. The question about, is he going to judge us? Well, Paul says, if he can't judge you because you're making him look good in your unrighteousness, well, he can't judge the pagans for that either. It's just a, a natural connection. He goes on. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner and why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just you see what he's saying 
people are, are drawing this conclusion. They're saying that, well, Paul teaches about grace, which means if, if God's grace is upon us, we can do whatever we want. Romans 6, shall we sin that grace may abound? You know what he says there? Meganoito. Again, may it never be. Hmm. If we follow this logic, we would be commending Hitler. We would be celebrating Judas. Hey, wow, you guys really made God look good. You really, I mean, you really sinned it up and, and showed how awesome God is. That, that's not what we're doing. That's not how we think. Think of it this way. It would be like a climber who loved to get himself in the most precarious and life-threatening situations, right? Over and over and over. So he would, he would get his climbing gear and he'd go up to a mountain, be like, yep, that cliff will do just great. He'll get up there and he'll get himself stuck where he can't go up and down, but if he's, if he's not rescued, he's going to die. And right in that place, he gets out his phone and he calls the rescue team. He's like, okay, guys, it's me again. Get ready to look good. Come rescue me. I'm about to die. Hang up. Right? Does that make any sense? Paul says, no. We don't just sin it up to make the rescue team look good. That's not what sin is. Sin is offensive and it's wrong. And there's no way you can construe it to make it anything but wrong. Yes, the rescue team does look good when they show up. And they rescue the foolish climber. And the grace of God is completely glorious. It's amazing. That's what we just sang. It's, it's truly amazing. But that doesn't mean that sin is good. He never taught that. And so he says, those who suggest this, their condemnation is just. Those are serious words. R.C. Sproul basically said that Paul is saying to those that play games like this with the Word of God, he's saying, to hell with them. Their condemnation is just. You want, you want to play games? Well, there's the door. Hmm. So we land on this point. God's judgments are always right and righteous. Everything God does is right. Christian, do you embrace that? Do you rest in that? Can you find a place of peace to say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my God is good. He is righteous. Every single thing He does defines goodness and righteousness. And against that, we need to be equally convinced that our sin is always wrong. There's no situation where we can try to, to spin up a, 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 an excuse enough to say, well, well, this sinful activity or response or action is, is justified. It's not. It's sin. It's wrong. Our response this morning, just a few thoughts here. One, praise God for His precious Word for this gift of His Holy Word, the oracles of God, right? His spoken words to us, written now and preserved. What access we have in these things. The question, though, begs, are we judging God or trusting God? Are we judging or trusting? 
you may have come in here and, and wondered, you know, I, I, if I'm honest, I, I have this little simmering, just this lingering struggle with God. I, I just, I don't approve of what he did in this situation or that. I, I, I've got a problem with him. And if I'm honest, I just can't get past it. Friend, I would encourage you, don't place yourself in a situation where you judge the judge of the earth. No one ever wins there. Humble yourself, even if you can't understand. And friends, here's the thing. So many times we won't in this life. We simply won't understand all of the ways of God. His ways are not our ways. He's higher than us, much higher. But we are called to trust Him, to run to Him, not from Him. Run to Him, trust Him. Even when you're struggling, even in the pain and the heartache, the point is, is He's calling you to depend upon Him. He's calling you to Himself. Are you trusting God? Or are you judging God? And I just want to close with this line. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. We live in a day where our culture is increasingly godless. And the pressure we begin to feel more and more. It feels like it's kind of closing in a bit, especially this past year. We've got brothers just north of us who are in jail for doing what I just did. In jail. Okay? So let's... Let's get our Paul Bauer out here and, and let's just apply this verse, friends. If everyone on the face of this earth turns their back on God, hates Him, rails against Him, proves themselves unfaithful, disobedient, liars before Him, how are we going to walk this out? I'll tell you how. Trust Him. He is right. He is righteous. He is faithful. We sang songs of His faithfulness today. Let God be true. We're going to trust Him. If no one else in the world does, we're going to trust Him. Lord, keep us there. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. You are true. You are a promise keeper. You are able to save. You call us from our darkness and into your marvelous light. You, you teach us what it means to, to, to be holy, and then you call us to live in the light. God, we thank you for the opportunity to obey you. It's truly a blessing. Thank you for your word that gives us such clear um, light on our path to what it looks like to obey you, to, to walk in the light as you are in the light. Oh God, Help us to avoid these silly games that can be played with words and, and, and conclusions. I pray that we would be serious about just embracing your word and trusting you. Help us to not you know, play mind games and, and, and logic games with you, but to embrace your clear and revealed word as good and true. Oh, Father, forgive us if we ever question your hand or judge you. Who are we? to pass judgment upon you. But we rest in you. We trust you. We cling to you like Lee Taylor clinged to you for eight years of suffering with joy in his heart for what was coming was far greater than any suffering he faced in this world. Make us like Lee Taylor, oh God, I pray. Tenacious, persevering, 
obedient to the end. And then, oh Lord, raise us up to be with you forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.